and we're here on No Driving Gloves. It's Wednesday. Looks like Wednesday's probably going to become a regular. I don't know. Tuesdays just aren't working out. We used to always record on Wednesdays. You remember those early days of the show? Oh, was that a question for me, John? Well, I figured I'd at least thought, let you. But it was. Step I, in. I thought it was just a. I thought it was. Yeah, I thought it was just a, a question for our listeners. You know, do you remember the early days of no driving gloves? Well, back we, when we recorded on Wednesdays because Tuesdays were spent with Maury. Yes, they were. No, but we weren't live streaming or anything back then, so I doubt if the listeners would have been aware. Hey, this is weird. I can talk with my hands, and because of the stupid green screen box I use, you can't see them. <laughs> Oh, so after we got some great feedback and, you know, we get feedback on some of our episodes, but we got some pretty good feedback on last week's episode of the five minute round robin. So be looking for more of those to come in because, I don't know, we knocked out what, 10, 12 topics last week and created uh, a lot. Probably get closer to 15. I think we each had three. I mean, I don't know. That would be nine. Not but the, wow. <laughs> I meant like let me let me redo that. We each I, I think we each had at least four or five, so oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That there were three of us that <laughs> had wow. All yeah. right. Well, I'm just gonna uh, go ahead and go. Uh, those those hosts of us that actually have real jobs and <laughs> need to be accountable. Oh, so well, we ended up with some questions out of that show. We got a, actually a really good one posed to us that Derek had in front of him. I forgot to pull it up on my end. Oh, nice. And I, I kind of wanted, I thought about replying to this. It was a Facebook message or something sent to the group. And I don't know. Do, 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 is it going to show up? There it is. You need me to read it? or uh, I found it. And I really don't know how you read the question, but it was going to be a long response. So we're going to do it orally. Oh, I also wanted to the commenter, I removed my label off my water bottle. So now you won't know when I'm drinking. See, it's green. So, <laughs> ah, the sarcasm. <laughs> ah. I'll just turn my camera or my mic off. That one's for you, Keith. <laughs> so, this is a question that was uh, being proposed, and, and we had him on as a guest. This is from Jason Hill. Uh, we probably could have had him on to. Give interjection on the answer. That's what you get for poor planning. Uh, better yeah. talk to the producer. But proposing a question to you, Will and Derek. Never bought a car and wondered what I could get for it when I sell it. And he was, you know, do you try to keep miles off of it, protect the value for the next guy? Or do you buy cars for you to enjoy? You know, what kind of what's our opinions on that? Um, he... He's thought about trading, and I'm probably going to have to, I don't know. He's talking about trading one of his cars for another car, and he has a traditionally collectible car that he's looking at getting rid of for a more recent collectible. Both are modern day, both in the last 10 years. But um He's just kind of trying to decide, do you worry about resale value? Do you worry about the pleasure? Um, I have a feeling, I know your answer, Derek. Um, what's your answer? Uh, well, if it's me, um, and uh, everybody probably knows by now, I, I, I make pretty poor financial decisions, even in my career. I work for a nonprofit. Yeah, this yeah. is the guy. Not a great financial decision. 
<laughs> yeah, he's got the 50,000 square foot shop in his backyard. <laughs> <laughs> wow, exaggerating. <laughs> I I'm I'm just one that's never I guess I never worry about the the resale value. I don't worry about oh, am I going to am I going to buy a car and and hold on to it and it's going to increase in value. And I mean the the good thing is is most of the cars you know if you're buying collector cars, you, you, earlier cars, antiques, muscle cars, any any of that genre you're, you're it's kind of like being in the stock market it's a little bit of a gamble but it's usually an investment because eventually the the price on those will go up if you sell at the right time you're going to make some money modern cars are a little more difficult which jason's really talking about more modern vehicles that's that's really where he is very current late model um you know vehicles and for me when i'm looking at those I'm never worried about the resale value. I'm I'm much more interested in uh, do I like it? Am I going to feel good driving it? Uh, you know, am I going to enjoy driving it? Especially, I drive on long road trips way more than I should, and so I want to be comfortable. I want to know that I'm going to enjoy the car that I'm driving. I'm not usually worried about you know trade-in value, resale value, and you know some of our listeners. Yeah, if Tony Watley was listening, he'd just be lambasting me right now for poor financial decisions. But that's that's the way I look at it personally. If it, if it's a modern vehicle that I'm going to be using as a daily driver, which he included in there that this is really truly he's going to be using it as a daily driver. I'm really more interested in does it do what I want it to do? Am I going to enjoy it? I'll take the example of the truck, my trucks. Yeah, I. I bought a GMC Sierra that uh, you know, checked most of the box boxes off of what I was looking for. Towing capability was a little lower than I wanted. It was like the second to the highest towing capability of the 1500 series GMC uh, Sierra Chevy Silverado lineup. And I was like, eh, well, it'll work. And it did. It pulled trailers. It was fine. But I did tell my salesman that, you know, hey, if something comes along that has a higher, the higher rating, let me know. I'll at least come look at it. And I think I owned the the GMC for eight months, nine months. And he sent me a text. I have two on the lot that have the higher tow capacity now. And one of those, which he sent me the picture of, because I think he knew I would just say, okay, I'll be right over. Uh, was the truck I currently own, which is the um, Chevy Silverado, the 100-year edition, the, the Centennial edition. And it's got all the box marks checked. Uh, it has all the boxes checked uh, of what I was looking for with tow capacity, all of that. But it also checked more boxes because it's a vehicle that honors the history of the company. And for the guy that's a director of collections and, and a curator and a collections guy, uh, you know, honoring that history of Chevrolet and, and the truck having the same badge as my 490 just was an additional benefit. So um, I didn't even take into account the fact that that truck probably someday will hold a higher resale value because I think there were a total of about 6,000 of them produced uh, with that package on it. The, you know, and that's across all, you know, regular cab, extended cab, crew cab, um, all of that, uh, you know, series. So 
you know, mine with the, what I call the crew cab. I don't remember what GM actually calls it. Now it's the four door full four door truck. Um, you know, there were a few lower numbers built uh, the 6,000 is across the board for all hundred year Silverados. Um, that was long winded. Sorry. Uh, but that's the way I look at it. We're, we're used to say so you we're used to your long winded Yes. Um, I kind of agree with you. And when you're coming to a modern automobile, um, and I don't even, I guess I don't even care if it's a modern automobile. If I go out and I buy, well, I'm trying to think here, uh, what low mileage thing. Well, I, my Lotus Elan M100, I was, you know, I bought it in the early 2000s and I was the first owner of this car because it had never been titled that it sat there, uh, you know, was owned by the dealer and used. So it had a few miles on it, but not a ton. But you know what? I'm going to use it. And I don't care. Um, I'm paying for it. And it's it's totally, I'm, I'm paying for it. And I'm not paying for it to keep it for the next guy and make it pretty for the next guy. Um, I've recently been in a conversation where a guy bought a 79 Trans Am, you know, Smokey and the Bandit edition. Uh, this thing had like 4,000 miles on it. Guess what? He's owned it for like eight months now. It's got like 19,000 miles on it. He drives it everywhere. Why you buy it, you know, whoever's owned this car for what? what is that, 40 years now, saved it for him to have a brand new car. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, sure. Everybody made a couple of dollars in the deal. But are the dollars more important than the fun? I mean, we can always make more money, but I think we got to have fun. And, you know, some of the stuff that, you know, Jason's asking about here, uh, trade-in values and will this, will my current late model collectible car be worth more than this other current late model collectible car? Honestly, I have a feeling personally that the car you're looking to trade to do, Jason, probably will hold percentage-wise value a little bit better. Uh, just because there's fewer of them, there's uh, the people that are buying them are you are you know a lot of them are saving them, uh, but your current car there are a ton of low mile ones out there, so just use it. It doesn't matter. I mean, in ten years, I mean, because I can go do it now. I can go look at cars that are twenty years old and say. There's a lot of ten to nineteen thousand mile cars out there because nobody drives them. Drive them, have fun with them. But on the age of stuff you're looking at, to be honest, go into the car dealership and say, "Hey, what's this thing going to be worth in three or four years?" There's actually books out there that are projecting these values because you can lease used cars. It's common with new cars, and I do that when I'm buying a brand new car. And we even did it with the Mini that I bought that really wasn't a new car. We looked at the residual value of the car in three years, if I was to have leased it. And if I was to have leased a new Mini, what is the residual value in three years? Because I want to know getting out because, as everybody knows, I don't keep cars very long. But when I go in, I want to know the out. And unfortunately, those out numbers are dictated by books and computers, not necessarily 
the world at, at large. Difference is, you know, years ago, my father had a car that he leased and it became extremely popular during his lease term. And he was able to sell it for more than what the payoff was at the end of his lease term. So he made a couple of bucks in that deal. Right now, with the way used car prices are, you probably can come out ahead, especially if your lease is ending right now. You probably are going to come out with a car that's valued more than what the residual is that you're paying on the lease. So, yeah, there there's ways, especially in cars, you know, you're talking cars no more than a decade old, of figuring out this stuff. But it's, uh, you know, really, if you've got the money to have the toy, it shouldn't make a difference what it's going to sell for. If it makes a difference on what it's going to sell for, I don't know if you really should have the toy. Uh, this coming from the guy that normally doesn't have the money for the toys that he has. <laughs> so, but yeah. No, no. Now, well, number one, you talked longer than I did. So, ha. Uh, but on that point, don't forget that almost all car guys, there's, there's, there's the select few. I don't know why my dog's going crazy. It kind of worries me. Um, I apologize, but other than the select few, most of us are car rich and money poor. I'm sorry. I was reading a, a comment here about what, what's the, uh, <laughs> what's the gain to lease. Yes. Uh, I haven't ever seen, uh, if it's worth the deal, I'll just put it up here on the screen, except that right now, you know, you're getting a better deal. It's there's, Reasons to lease. Um, I don't lease. I put too many miles on a car, but there are ways out of that, too. A lot of times you can lease to make the payment lower or you're somebody who knows you're going to trade every two or three years and you've committed to always making a car payment. So you're just going to have this car payment and have this car payment and you know you're going to be safe. And when you're in when your three years is up, you're going to give that car back. You're going to have another car. It keeps you under warranty. It keeps everything happy. You 100% know your numbers. Uh, if you own a business in that, there can be some tax advantages to leasing. But everything is to each his own. I'll be honest right now. I'm really interested in the subscription models that Volvo has, Porsche has, and a couple other manufacturers have where, yeah, the payment's a lot. You know, you can, I think Porsche's is two grand a month or something. But you're subscribing to Porsche and you have a choice between three cars like a Macan, uh, a Cayman and maybe a base Panamera or something like that. I don't know what the exact deals are and what the exact pricing is, but you can have a Cayman on the weekends. You can have a, um, you know, you can have a Macan when family's in town. You're able to m move things around. You don't have to worry about maintenance. You don't have to worry about depreciation. You don't have to worry about insurance. You just have a deductible if you turn in the car that's damaged. So I think paying attention to the new car subscription programs is a really good way of getting a, doing this stuff. And I think the manufacturers are going to eventually want us all to move to these subscription programs because then they're going to totally change the group or the idea. Um, no, I, to I totally agree, John. Totally agree. Um, 
No idea what you just said. <laughs> Sorry, one of my neighbors was uh, knocking at the door, and uh, my dog went ballistic on them. So uh, that is that's what just occurred, and I apologize for having to leave. So, uh, but I did catch that last part, and connecting it to using context clues here, and connecting it to the question at hand with uh, lease programs. You know, I th- I think you're exactly right at that last comment, John, which is you know manufacturers are going to start pushing more and more to some type of lease slash subscription program because I, you know, I hate, again, as we've talked about on the show, you, you know, for those of us car people out there, uh, you know, we hope that it doesn't go this way, but, you know, we talked about it, I think on the last episode, you know, the idea of pods that pick you up and take you to where you go and all of that, uh, that's probably going to be a subscription-based service. And so I think you're kind of hitting the nail on the head with that comment, John. And the follow-up that came up here is kind of what I said, put too many miles on a car so a lease doesn't make sense. Now, you can always buy more miles into your lease. There's also, you can lease and take advantage of the lower payment. And there is, depending on the type of lease you have, there is a way out that you're not going to end up paying the huge mileage penalties. Um, It's kind of a loophole. A lot of people take advantage of it. Um, I really don't know if, since I'm not an attorney and I'm not a financial advisor, I don't know if I want to tell you the loophole. But if you do some research, there are ways you can lease a car and you don't have to worry about the mileage. Um, But you really have to play the game carefully. And I think people know who've been listening to the show for the last few years know I love to manipulate the system so we can go with that one we were talking on jason's question this one's for you Derek, because this one came up in a facebook group that i was in um it might have been obscure cars or something and a guy posted something and goes i'm thinking about buying this and of course the next 60 comments are miata miatas are always or is always the answer uh, that's what miata stands for yeah is always the answer uh, but the guy had posted a picture of a Pontiac Solstice and thought it would be a fun, to, cool car to have. As a previous Solstice owner, what's your thought on that one? Sorry, I was reading one of the comments uh, from a, <laughs> a, a, an acquaintance um, who wants to know the loophole. Uh, the Pontiac Solstice. Uh, so uh, I absolutely love the Pontiac Solstice. I'm a Pontiac guy at heart though. You have to remember I, I owned a G- 74 Pontiac GTO is my first car. Um, I've, I've always loved most of Pontiac styling, most of Pontiac. Yeah. I mean, the history of Pontiac is interesting and I absolutely love the car. It, it has an interesting backstory. Yeah. With, with, the team at GM wanting to bring out something uh, almost a modern version of the original Corvette, the 53 Corvette, uh, rather than the, you know, the Corvette as the sports car existed as at the time, they wanted to bring out something as a smaller compact, uh, really a, a, a Miata, you know, competition car. And in my opinion, it was a fantastic car. I absolutely loved the one I owned. It was a blast to drive. I've driven Miatas as well. They are fun too. Um, but this, to me, 
to me, the styling of a Miata leaves a lot to be desired. Whereas the Solstice and truly the Sky Roadster, same same car, different body panels. Um, they both have great styling. Now, I get a little hard time with that, especially from uh, my lovely wife. Uh, she absolutely hates the styling of the Pontiac Solstice. Uh, he does not like round, um, you know, kind of uh, bulbous, as she uses the term, uh, cars that kind of have those very round features. Uh, whereas on the Solstice, I, I thought it looked good. Uh, you know, I do like the Corvettes that have very sharp lines, the C8, the C7, uh, you know, but it, it's all in personal taste. But uh, I I owned that car for quite a while and I loved it. I, I mean, it was a fantastic car. I would honestly, if it's me, I'm going to recommend the Solstice over the Miata. I think they each have their place. And I defended the guy with the soul for buying the Solstice. I mean, the Miata is a great, great car, but you take a Miata to any Saturday night cruise, you park your Mazda in the parking lot. You park a solstice, people are going to talk about it. It's being different. It's being odd. Yeah, the people are what keep this car hobby together. But that unusual car, something different, gets more people to come over and talk to you, and you get to meet more people. Uh, That's, you know, it's one of the reasons I think I really got into Lotus for a long time is it's the oddball out. You go anywhere with something that's different people talk to you about it and you're accepted no matter what i mean i think you can show up anywhere with a a solstice and if you really have the bucks you show up with a mallet solstice is it's mallet that did that um with the ls power yeah you're going to have a lot of friends people are going to talk to you miatas i don't think so much you show up at an autocross with a solstice or a miata the miata is going to get more attention but i think in the the while you're buying your car to have fun and maybe get people to look at you, uh, I think the solstice is the way you know is the right decision. I don't think there's anything wrong. You just buy it's your money again. Buy what you want and enjoy what you mm-hmm. have. And when you take your solstice somewhere and another one pulls up, you sell it and go out and buy a Lloyd custom bodied Lloyd micro car. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's yeah. If you got to be the odd man out. <laughs> You go go loopholes here. I'll go back a little bit here to Jamie. Just think leasing is an alternative way to finance your vehicle. Um, depending on your lease contract, read it. It doesn't necessarily say you have to sell it back to the leasing company. That's how you get out of it. Is that cryptic enough for you? And um, what we highly Lane, recommend you say, never <laughs> take advice from any of us. <laughs> yeah. And Lane, um, that's exactly why I have a uh, Mini Cooper now because I got I got more money for my Fusion when I traded it than when I paid for it, and the reason I bought my Fusion when I bought it is because it was it was exact same reason you did with your eighteen to seventeen as you're comparing here uh, on in the comments on your trucks. My nineteen Fusion was cheaper than buying a two thousand seventeen Fusion used with thirty thousand miles. And when I traded this that Fusion here four weeks ago or whatever, I got more money than what I paid for it in 19. So, yeah, I mean, it's the world's really screwy right now. So, you know, just decide what you really want to do with your your money in that. Uh, if I don't know how many of our listeners have you been paying attention 
Uh, he says he might have it. <laughs> might have understood my cryptic comments. Um, we've been doing Tomorrow in History, as Derek uh, suggested, on commonly on Instagram and Facebook, and occasionally it's popping up on the No Driving Gloves LinkedIn page. I got a question back. One of the uh, posts earlier in the week was in reference to Porsche and the introduction of the electric car. Uh, somehow I alluded to it, and I probably should have this pulled up in advance, but of course I don't. So am I pushing the right buttons here? I don't use Instagram that often. So there's a picture of Courtney. There's a, that's not what I want. There's what I want. Listen to every, every reel that John has watched over the last three days. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I don't even know where it went. Maybe it was only on Facebook, but the question came to me, what did professor Porsche use to power the, his electric car? because we need a history in batteries. Um, It was a battery-powered electric car, was it not, Derek? That is correct, John. So do you you know any of the history of batteries? Because that's really got got me thinking, is where batteries and where do they... When did batteries become... When were they invented? (laughs) You know, hmm. Well, batteries have been around. Okay, so this is batteries have been around an extremely long time. There has been understanding of how to build a battery for a very long time, especially dry cell batteries. And you have to remember that a lot of early automobiles were run on dry cell batteries, not wet cell batteries, number one. Um, but they have actually found rudimentary uh, batteries, uh, I mean, in archaeological digs in Roman times. Uh, you know, there have been understanding of the science of batteries for a very long time. Uh, battery is, is a very old technology, I mean, even down to the ability to essentially use the energy of a, something like a potato to create a battery. Yes, you can do it. Look it up. Um, but there were kids yes, in the back Porsche, of my boy's life all the time. Exactly. Um, yeah. So Porsche and see, I'm. I was trying to pull it up as well, John, and I'm having all kinds of problems because it's a, I, I, I got a German the page that, that's wanting to fight oh. me. Oh, I was saying um, I found our post, and it was actually referring to uh, Ferdinand Porsche got out of French prison on uh, August. 4th. First, and I guess if I forgot to put the year in there, but uh, but he his first car that was picked I used as a picture was his electric car from 1898. Yes, 1898. It was actually designed, but it didn't carry the Porsche name. It was designed by Porsche, and and he was involved with the company, um, the uh, loaner loaner law. I don't know how to say it. L O H N E R. Um, and yes, it was an electric vehicle. I have not studied up on, I, I know the vehicle. I read a little bit about it. I personally have not studied up on the battery technology that was used for it. Um, a quick reading here on some, you know, some of the Porsche history stuff. Uh, they call it a octagon electric motor. I don't know what that is. I apologize. Had I known John was going to throw this at me, I would have done my research. Um, but I you told also have him to in a text. Two, as, I, I told you in a text two hours ago. 
Yeah, two hours ago. Uh, well, I was still working and then I had to come home and have dinner with the family and do all that. Uh, but Porsche also would go on to design hybrid vehicles as well and use electric motors in the hub. So he actually used electric hub motors. Uh, he was very ahead of his time and used basically cutting edge technology at the time to build fully electric as well as hybrid vehicles uh, coming out of the loaner company and some of the other companies he was working with. And I want to remind people that between about 1890, let's say 1896, 97 and about 1903, electric automobiles were the highest selling vehicles in the United States. There were more electric vehicles being sold than any other steam or gas power. Uh, so uh, electric was known back then and it was heavily utilized back then in the auto industry. I just wanted to touch on that one for a second. That was, you know, another one of the questions that had popped up during the week on various social media. Hang on. Cause I want to, I want to, I want to touch on Lane, Lane's last comment here. You can't throw out a shout out to one of the hosts that didn't make it tonight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, Will. Yeah, Will's absent this evening. He's uh, working. I believe he's he's going to Louisville for the one of the shows this weekend. John, John, we're in the South. You have to pronounce it correctly. The Louisville. I'm not in the South. You're in Birmingham. You're further south than I am. <laughs> Yeah, I'm in denial though. That's north. That's in the, the north. That's in northern yeah. <laughs> denial. <laughs> okay, so anyway, back to electric vehicles. What were you going to say, John? I wasn't going to say anything about I electric. Cut you off and you lost your train of thought. Where tra we do yes. realize trains are electric, right? And they're just a big diesel generator. Well, <laughs> diesel electric. It's hybrid. Hybrid technology. Oh, let's see here. Oh, Jason just showed up. Jason, you're going to have to go back and listen to the beginning of the episode. First 20 minutes we spent yep. on your question. Yep. Talked bad about you for the last, for the first 20 minutes. Yep. <clears throat> Told you, you, you know, that Volvo C30, that's the way to go. You trade your Ferrari for that. That's, oh, did I say mm -hmm. the cars? I didn't mean to do yes. that. So, so, so where do we want to take this electric vehicle conversation? Let's get back, back to electric vehicles. I don't know if I want to get back to electric vehicles. We talk a lot about electric vehicles, and uh, I don't know if there's a lot going on with them lately. I mean, it, all of a sudden, Tesla's in, on the back burner, and we're using rockets and stuff and sending billionaires in space. It sounds like a... Remember the pigs in space from the Muppets? Now it's billionaires in space... Now, odd segue there. The viewer, the viewer number is dropping. <laughs> yeah, it's ranging right up there with zero to sixty times of Ferraris <laughs> and Teslas. <laughs> uh, oh, he said he happened to text Derek, and he told told him something. Yeah, exactly. Told, I told him he'd better be watching the show because we were talking about it. Oh. Olivia wants to give a shout out to Derek. She already talked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Jamie's a friend from here in Bowling Green. She's she's an awesome person. So thank you for listening. 
So what else do you have happening in the automotive world? I went on a tirade earlier over, I think it was Motor Junkies on the on Facebook. But. Uh, I evidently wasn't paying attention to that, John. Yeah, they had a list. I, of, I have uh, not had the... Yeah, Motor Junkie. And an article that was by Cameron Eatrib. I don't know what world this guy lives in in cars, but it was a list of the 19, like 19 most worthless sports cars ever created. Lotus Elise, because it has exceedingly expensive maintenance costs with its Toyota components. That was one of the problems. And the BRZ that he said is horrible because it's a twin to Toyota and the worst thing is it's only available in all-wheel drive, not rear-wheel drive like the Toyota, which I got confused because the BRZ that used to reside in my driveway was rear-wheel drive. Yeah, um, the one the ones I drove were all rear-wheel drive. Yeah, because that's yeah. the only Subaru that's made that is not all-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Cayman has massive depreciation numbers, speaking of our earlier conversation because it is not being accepted by Porsche enthusiasts. No, it has massive depreciation numbers because the motors explode within seconds when the intermediate <laughs> bearing fails. <laughs> and now that we've figured out how to fix it, they've actually stabilized in the market. <laughs> but, but John, you see the, that failure is why Porsche it, the owners are not accepting it into their world. And let me try this one on for you, Derek. I didn't put this one on the list. You might not know the answer, but when I would say uh, in an Integra Type R, do you remember those cars from about 2000, 2001, any chance? I remember Integra, but I don't remember Type R. I don't, that doesn't. He pointed out that most of them, or all of them are sold in a hideous yellow with very limited color choices. No, the majority of them were sold were white. Yellow was an optional color, and they didn't sell too many of those in yellow. Another one was the uh, Honda S2000. Can you guess why the S2000 is a failure as a sports car? Because Honda built it? No, because they used entirely off-the-shelf components to build this convertible two-seat rear-wheel drive Roadster in the Honda lineup. Do you see the problem here? I, I really want to tell a historic story here. I really, really want to get into the history of sports cars right now. Can we do that? Because because there's a car out there that's one of the longest running uh, sports cars in history that started exactly the same way. And Jason just ruined that whole conversation because he left it in the comments. Well, what I'm going for is Honda, who has only front-wheel drive drivetrains, front-wheel drive transmissions, front-wheel drive cars, does not build a convertible, is using all off-the-shelf components to build a rear-wheel drive. And I can't remember for sure. Somebody tell me if I'm wrong. I thought the S2000 was a five-cylinder. I could be wrong on that one. Um you know, there's very few off-the-shelf components. I might give you the hood badge. The little H might have been the same one they used on an Accord. But <laughs> I'm totally lost on that one. 
And uh, the Miata, he claimed, is outdated because it lacks innovation. Guess what? It does. Guess why people buy Miatas? Because they're simple, fun cars. (laughs) So can we get into a bigger conversation here? Because... This is something I've noticed way too much in automotive journalism. Let me let me the, finish with this guy, ah. and then we can throw the automotive journalists under the bus. Um, I'm not quite sure what he said, because this is the number one car on the list, and by then I pretty much quit reading. It's a picture problem. He's talking about the BMW M2. I'm not good with my BMWs, but when the trunk says M3, and it's up, I don't know, E4. 46 is that right for about a 2000 2001 bmw m3 um how about putting the right picture with the right car and from what i understand the m2 and the m1s were really good fun cars and i now after having my mini want to drive one of them (laughs) but before i never did but i mean he couldn't even get the right picture with the right car so I mean, what did I cover? One, two, three, four, five, six cars out of his 19. And like I said, I really didn't read after about number 12. Um, I'm not sure what qualified this guy as an automotive journalist. You may begin your tirade, Derek. Thank you. Thank you. I've been, I've been, I've been twitching, twitching. I don't understand this. If you're going to write an article on automobiles research if if you're that passionate about the automotive industry collector cars any of this do some research like john just said get the right pictures that should be the the easiest part of the whole thing oh i want to talk about the bmw m2 let me grab a picture of an m2 and you grab a picture of m3 that's you should not be writing the article if you can't at least get that right i will say this i read i read automotive history books i have a ton of them sitting around and i've gotten into a few of them and within the first five pages i will find a photograph in the in the book that has the wrong information below it about the car in it. And I put the book down because if you, if you get it wrong in the first four pages, I don't need to waste my time on the rest of the book. And I would love to actually, this is interesting. This could be a a greater discussion and try to talk to, you know, people in other realms and other, other, you know, journalistic areas. But is it just it does it happen elsewhere does it happen in the you know uh, real estate world with the younger journalists writing about real estate Do, you know uh, i mean is somebody out there writing a list of the worst uh, architects ever and number one is frank lloyd wright because well i don't really get why he used all those square corners on his houses it's just i don't understand like and I'm I'm at a loss sometimes anymore when I read automotive articles. And that's not to say that there aren't some great ones out there. I have a lot of friends that write for uh, various automotive journals. Uh, you know, one of my best friends from college is at Hemmings Motor News and he strives to get his articles as accurate as possible. Does his own photography for his articles most of the time. Sometimes he'll use um you know 
staff or old photos that they can pull up from their archives. But that's the type of journalists we need in the automotive realm, especially the classic car end of it, if we're going to keep people interested. Was that enough? Should I keep going? Oh, you could go on. And I mean, it went long enough that I kind of slipped my mind what I was going to say. I did look up and I was wrong that the S2000 is a four cylinder. For some reason, I thought it was a five cylinder. Maybe it was the first Honda that the motor rotated the correct direction um, because most Hondas up until the last couple of generations, their motors actually were rotated in reverse of the norm. And I can't remember if that's clockwise or counterclockwise, and it always depends if you're looking at it or you're sitting in the driver's seat, whatever. But it's but see, right there, I went and I took two seconds and I researched the statement I made, and when it's wrong, I admitted it was wrong. I even admitted when I said it, I wasn't sure if I was right. I don't, I don't get this subpar, and like you said, Derek, I. I think it happens everywhere and it goes to journalism because people don't read the entire articles. People read the headline, the worst sports cars ever or whatever. And then they go, Oh, Lotus Elise, BRZ. They don't even read why the guy is saying it. I just know I'm not going to buy any of these 19 sports cars. And guess what? It's also the only kind of 19 sports cars that are still available, but it's, there's some journalistic responsibility we make mistakes in the show. We correct them when we can. Um, I just, and I, I can't remember how many episodes have we done that we went back and tore apart articles with just off the cuff common knowledge, let alone, um, I mean, I could have researched every car on here and I'm sure he was just about wrong on every one. Um, I probably should well, have tried to see, see if I was a right one. Right. Here's the thing. Like, I, if it's an opinion piece and you want to write your opinion and, you know, these are the, the things that I see wrong with the car or these are the things that owners have complained about about the car. That's one thing. But like, John, when you get the basic facts wrong about the cars, there's no reason that you should be writing the article. If, if you can't. And, you know, I'm coming from a historian aspect of this if if i get things wrong that's bad that's bad you know and i i hated it let's put it let's let's do a little digging here i hated history in high school why did i hate history in high school because we just had to learn what was in the textbooks and make sure we could answer the test questions i came from that generation of you know teaching to the tests and all of that stuff. And it made me despise history because it was memorizing names and dates and all of those type of things. When I got to college, I was, I was actually going for chemistry. I was, I was going to be, you know, chemistry degree, whatever, figure it out. And then I stumbled into the museum studies thing, thought that sounded interesting. Well, if you're going to do museum studies, you should think about actually a history degree. Huh, I hate history. Like the second or third class I took, I had a professor who, you know, one of the kids in the class this was not me. I think everybody knows me well enough that I wouldn't ask a question like this. Uh, you know, raised his hand. He said, well, you know, uh, are the are the tests going to be open book? And the professor looked at the guy and he said, you know what? Why not? He said, because 
even with the book open, you're not going to pass my test. History is not about memorizing names and dates and battle names of battlefields and things like that. So that's why historians write books. So we have them to reference and go back to that. We can, we can make sure we're getting things right. True historians understand the importance of what happened at those events and how they impact the world today. I mean, that, that changed my perspective on history completely because that's what it's about. It's about understanding things, knowing your basic facts or looking them up if you forget them, but understanding why the 1953 Corvette and being assembled from almost all off-the-shelf parts that were modified other than a new fiberglass body, how that impacted the sports car market in America and led to the C8 Corvette, the mid-engine Corvette we have today. That's about being a historian. And that should, there should be more pride in that in journalism. If you're going to write articles that refer to uh, the history of the automobile or historic fact about the automobile. Yeah. I did click the link in uh, the Facebook post and go to Facebook and you can find this article that I'm talking about on motor junkies. Um, it's changed. When I posted it, there were only 19 cars on the list. Uh, there's 35 of them now. Oh, <laughs> oh, and I will say, okay, when we're getting down to 35, now nah, they're right on a couple. I mean, like number 34, the 84 to 96 Corvette. You know, they're, that's, that's easily probably one of the most flawed sports cars of, of history. <laughs> I'm I'm lying. See, insert sarcasm. Did you see the, the big little letters? Big little letters. <laughs> um, I mean, there there might be some legitimate ones on here. Cobalt SS, um, DeLorean. Yeah, I mean, that's always got to be intermixed. Guess what does appear on here? Not exactly the Solstice, but the Sky, the 370Z, which was a hell of a sports car when it came out. Um, you know, it just got too long in the tooth. I don't know what his reason is. Uh, what? Okay, he specified 82 Mondial, so he's right there. But, I mean, go through the article. Leave us some comments on what your feeling is after you read it. I just, I don't know. Uh, there was one question I shot at you in a text earlier, Derek, and I don't know. And I, Jason actually responded uh, with an answer because one of the uh, posts I put up earlier this week was about the uh, Corvette moving uh, Corvette assembly plan. I guess Jan July 31st was the last day. Um, here's what I wrote and put on Facebook in what seems odd to John, the final Corvette was produced on tomorrow's date, 73181 at the St. Louis assembly plant. All Corvettes, and I forgot to capitalize Corvette there, I'm sorry, after this date would be produced at the Bowling Green facility. Parentheses. It just seems odd to John that they would uh, move production with one year left of a body style because as of that date, a redesigned Corvette was slated to come out in 1983, the C4. Do you know why they did that, Derek? Was the C4 supposed to come out in 82, which was Jason's hypothesis? Or was it necessitated by something with GM? Or was it just 1980s auto manufacturing or what? It's There were a lot of <laughs> factors. No, no, no. There were a lot of factors in that the decision to move. 
Uh, you know, one of the big ones is that the facility at St. Louis was not capable of what was needed for Corvette. They were actually in the old building behind the new plant, making building producing the Corvettes, and that building parts of it dated from the late 1920s. And it, although it had been retrofitted and updated some, it was not capable of the quality that they were aiming to start building with Corvette, especially the new fourth generation Corvette that was going to be coming out. Uh, That was going to be a car that needed to be uh, really technology. It's technologically advanced for the time. And it was needed to be built in in a quality fashion. It needed a new assembly line. And they knew that. They also, General Motors was also looking at the fact that they were landlocked in St. Louis. They had no more uh, land that they could purchase around the plant to make it larger and try to update the facility. They were stuck. They had to move the plant. And they looked all around the country. Uh, Bowling Green offered them some great opportunities, a lot of land that basically pretty much ensured that they would never be in a situation they were in in St. Louis where they wouldn't be able to expand and keep that you know assembly line what it needed to be. So they were in kind of a, a point of we just got to make this happen. We have got to make the move. We've got to get a new plant going. And so they began, you know, retrofitting and and rebuilding and renovating, whatever term you want to use here, the old Chrysler Industrial Air Conditioning Plant here in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and turned it into an assembly line for Corvette. And, you know, basically they just decided they're going to get production going uh, at Bowling Green to start building Corvettes. That 1981 is the only year. Corvette was built in two different locations, actually on assembly line at two different locations, St. Louis and Bowling Green, Kentucky. And once they knew the Bowling Green plant was up and running and ready to go, they shut down St. Louis and rolled with production in Bowling Green. The C4 Corvette was always intended to come out in 1983. There was no thought of it being in 82. They knew the 82 production was going to end. And when they realized they weren't going to be able to build the 83 Corvette and bring out the C4 and 83, that's when the collector's edition uh, was brought onto the market and onto the line to be built. So they extended 1982 production with the collector's edition. And that's what carried that through for until the shutdown to retool the plant, get everything figured out. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, I will cover this here. If you have an early 1984 Corvette and you go to AutoZone or you go to Napa or you go to one of the parts stores and you give them your VIN number and they type it in, they're going to tell you you have a 1983 Corvette. I'm sorry, you do not. Every C4 Corvette starting production in, I think it was uh, towards the end of March. I don't remember the date of 1983. They started production early so they could get cars back on the lots and bring the new car out. They fall into what the federal VIN number kind of status is. They fall into being called a 1983. However, all 
of those cars are titled from factory as 1984s. Uh, yes, they have parts on them, even from suppliers that are st- stamped with 83. That does not mean it's a 1983 Corvette. But in, in all reality, it was really the move to Bowling Green. That whole situation that happened at the end of the, the third generation of Corvette was merely out of necessity of a better facility that could produce the car they they knew they were going to be building. And I guess you said two things in there that I want to go back and comment on. Now that explains to me why the collector's edition Corvettes carried the same um, engines and fuel injection system that the 84s did, correct? Yes. And in modern automotive times, and I don't know when this actually changed, you can now in the United States begin selling next year's model. So you can start selling 2023 cars as of January 2nd, 2022. So you can't, it can't be more than 365 days prior to the model year it's being represented. So I get that falls back to even 83 in the Corvettes. And we all have experienced our AutoZone, um, What's the meme right now? You sh- you know, it's even worse than the Walmart ones. It's bad when you've got to go into AutoZone and go in the back and get your own parts. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, I unfortunately, dealt- I've done that a few times. <laughs> I, I've, I did that. I mean, it was when, you know, everything I had in high school was modified. And when you went in and you asked for, you know, something for your 90 Isuzu and it needed to fit a 77 Corvette. <laughs> They, no, they almost refuse to sell it to you. Um, the best part is that when you're just trying to figure out what parts might fit if, if you've got an oddball car and it it looks like, you know, you look at a part and, and you kind of cross-reference it in, you know, either online or in old books you have or whatever. And I'm going to, the Lloyd, I was working on the Lloyd, uh, the brake system. Man, those parts looked a little bit like Volkswagen. So I went in and I said, do you guys carry parts for like Volkswagens? You know, I don't remember what the year range was that I was, I think it was like 58 to 62, looked very similar or something like that. And of course the guy at the counter is like, we have some, yeah, what, uh, what, what car is it on? I said, well, it's on a 1958 Lloyd, but that's not going to help you any. And they didn't know what to do. I, I'm like, no, 19, I want to look at a 58 to 62 VW part. So just type in 58 to 62 VW. Don't worry about what car it's on. That doesn't matter right now. I need to look at the part. And they just could not figure it out. Um, really a shame. And, and uh, John, if I, I can go back and one of my f- favorite things to talk about, and I know people um, are probably going to still hate me for this. There is no 1964 and a half Ford Mustang. I know we've had that conversation before. And the reason for the long pause is I was just talking to somebody or looking at a picture the other day uh, because it was a 65 Mustang with the 64 and a half rear valance on it. So, you know, so somebody that... actually, so actually somebody called their car the right thing. That's what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I can't remember. We must have had that conversation the first time we met in what, 08 or something at Barber's when you yeah. had the uh, something, I don't know, something popped up in my memories with the uh, original, what, 63 Mustang prototype that you brought down. But mm-hmm. I think we covered a lot on today's show. 
Um, a lot of questions and comments still keep popping in. Um, let's see here. Trying to see if there's anything. Yeah, with tooling changes in uh, mm-hmm. uh, for Honda. Um, part number 121G. We all know that'll get you at AutoZone, I think. Um, unfortunately, I thought it was 121GW, but eh, maybe I, I'm wrong. I, 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 um, oh, that's for the wide body. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the the wide body when you know you go and you take your plastic fenders from J.C. Whitney and stick them on your DeLorean, but that's that part. Do, ba- do you just stick those on, or is that do you have to drill through the stainless to do that? I, I think you weld them on. You Ooh. weld that plastic to the stainless. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. And, and that part's been back ordered ever since Doc Brown picked his up. So. But other than that, I'm going to duck out of here for the night. We've hit hit our 60 minutes. Uh, I think it's hopefully been a fun show. I don't think you and I were very academic tonight. We got touched, but I don't think we had a very monotonous academic show. I I might have slipped into it a few times. I apologize. (laughs) It's it's just the the historian in me, guys. It's, It's who I am. Yep. Well, I'm going to get out of here. I've got, I'm trying to help broker a deal in central Illinois on a car or t- could be two or three now. I don't know. It's all of a sudden went from two, one person to three people, but hey, hey, whatever works. More money uh, in your pocket, man. Maybe. <laughs> um, other than that, oh, I got a happy la- laughing face up there now. We must have did something right tonight. And look at that, me without arms yeah. <laughs> or n- no forearm, no forearm. <laughs> I'm out of here. Talk to you next week. See you guys later.